I've got us access to about 200,000 tracks. And uh, with that initial set of tracks, we would drop one track as like a seed track into the database. And we would just ask the AI to pull the most similar tracks based on the fingerprint. Back then, I think we had to we had to wait a whole 30 minutes to see the results. So I think we sort of set it running and, and went out for lunch. And when we came back, we found that the 10 tracks that it had pulled back as a playlist were fantastic. And I was like, oh, wow, this really works. My name's Hazel Savage, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Museo. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lampart, and today, how Hazel Savage is paving the way to automated music tagging and search through the power of AI. All this and more on Code Story. Hazel Savage is originally from Northeast England. She's played the guitar since she was 13 and started out as a self-taught player. Her first guitar was a cherry red Fender Telecaster, followed by a Fender Cyclone and a Dan Electra Hodad. Recently, she started getting more into collecting, grabbing a Gibson Goddess for her collection. She used to play in an all-girl punk band in London called Jinkinta. She worked part-time at HMV, a record store, stocking shelves, putting CDs out, and gaining an understanding of the music world from the perspective of a customer. I find it interesting that she doesn't miss the physical music products. From her point of view, a large collection of CDs can weigh a lot and are hard to move across the country. After joining an incubator in Singapore, she was paired up with her now co-founder, who is deeply technical and well-versed in AI. Combined with her extensive knowledge of the music industry, they set out to change the face of music and the fingerprints found inside it. This is the creation story of Musio. Musio is, you know, I say we're an artificial intelligence company for the music industry. But for those in the know, essentially what we are is a data processing company. It just so happens that the data that we process is music. And so it goes right back to what I was just talking about with the with the record store. So as I say, when I was the, the person putting the CDs on the shelf on a Sunday night, ready for sale on a Monday morning, because uh, for anyone old enough to remember, in uh, the UK, all music was for sale at 9am on a Monday morning. I would, you know, close the shop on a Sunday and then I would stay back, put those discs ready there for 9am the next day. And on a really busy week, there'd be maybe, you know, five, six, maybe, maybe 10 CD singles at a push. And on a really quiet week, two or three you know, depending on the week. And that was it. That was new music. Like, whilst I was stacking the shelf, I could have listened to pretty much all of it in its entirety. And then, you know, you look towards companies today, such as, you know, Spotify, are very uh, vocal about the fact they have 60,000 tracks being uploaded to their platform a day. And so that's really the challenge that we address, which is there is now not more music that comes out on a daily basis than used to come out in a whole year, 10 years ago. So how does the industry cope? Because, you know, music's 
doing a great job of making more money and figuring out how to monetize streaming and and live where possible and merchandise opportunities. But physical retail was, you know, a a set price and and a very easily quantifiable amount. So now that there is so much more music, and I do think it's fantastic that, you know, pretty much anyone at home with a with a laptop can create and release music. I think that's a fantastic uh, advancement in the technology. But how does the rest of the industry cope? How do streaming services know what they've got? How do record labels sort through the demos that get sent to them, which maybe used to be a couple of hundred and now is tens of thousands? You know, how do sync companies who might want to say, oh, let's find a new theme tune for this fantastic uh, Netflix show, but now they have to search through a database of 200,000 songs. How do you use artificial intelligence to create shortcuts and basically give tools to the people we have in the industry who are now coping with a much, much larger volume of content than they ever had to? So I actually was working for another music tech startup in Singapore, and I got invited to interview for a startup incubator called Entrepreneur First. Entrepreneur First, or EF, is a an incubator based out of the UK originally, but they've got offices now in Toronto, Singapore, Bangalore, uh, Paris, Berlin. What they do is they, they bring on individuals. So they don't look for sort of small companies to invest in. They look for individuals that they think have potential. So I'm what they call a domain expert. You know, I've only ever worked in in music, more specifically music tech. So, you know, for over 10 years. So the chances of me being able to build something in this space are higher than the average person, uh, their chances would be. And then my co-founder is deeply technical. You know, he's been a developer for over 15 years. And so they invite people like he and I to join the program. And when I did it in uh, 2018, there was 100 people in our cohort. And every person that shows up is, is open to starting a company. And really from there, you have a coffee with as many people as you can. You have a chat with as many people as you can. And you find someone that you think, yeah, let's let's try working on something. And so for me, that was myself and my co-founder, Aaron. He is a very, very deep, deeply technical AI developer. And then my experience of the music industry and the, using those forces combined is, is how we came up with the idea and how we build, uh, how we decided to build Museo. Let's jump into the MVP. Let's jump into that first product you built. Tell me about, you know, what sort of tools you use to bring it to life and how long it took you to build. So obviously when the company first started, it was just the two of us in a in a sort of a co-working space that EF have in the middle of Singapore. It was me on the same 13-inch MacBook Air that I've had for the last six years and I am speaking to you on right now. And my co-founder with a a pretty nifty gaming laptop. You know, it's a pretty high end, but he is on his third one. He he does uh, burn through the, uh, the processes quite quickly, I think. Essentially, you know, once we'd workshopped our idea and once we thought, could you train, essentially the initial thought was just, could you train an AI to listen to music? From that basis, you know, we hadn't even thought about, you know, industry pricing or or monetization. We just thought, could an AI replicate some of the tasks that a human does while listening to music? So that was our kind of our first premise. And I remember the very first, uh, you know, we just used to sit opposite each other on our laptops, me sort of hitting up my industry friends on LinkedIn to see what they thought about this idea and him sort of experimenting with some models, uh, some he'd previously built, some he built from scratch and then just seeing what we could get. And I remember there was one day in particular 
I, you know, and I sort of said, hey, you know, how's it going? What's an update? And my co-founder had managed to replicate exactly the Shazam technology. So he'd been able to teach an AI to find an identical track. And I was like, that's that's great. And that would have been cutting edge uh, 15 years ago. But um, that's pretty that's pretty standard now. So uh, so but interesting that you just hack that together in the morning. You know, that really shows sort of how fast tech does move. But and I do remember really clearly, you know, one of the first uh, little mini projects or MVPs was we've been working together for about three months. I've got us access to about 200,000 tracks, which was part of the Free Music Archive, the FMA. And uh, with that initial set of tracks, we were able to build a very, very early prototype where we would drop one track as like a seed track into the database. And we would just ask the AI to pull the most similar tracks, like based on the fingerprint. And I remember at the time, any model we had, I mean, the models we have now run in milliseconds, but back then I think we had to, we had to wait a whole 30 minutes to see, see the results. So I think we sort of set it running and, and went out for lunch. And when we came back, we found that we dropped in a, a Kurt Vile uh, folk song as the seed track. The 10 tracks that it had pulled back as a playlist were fantastic. Stuff that I would never have found in that 200,000 song database, you know, in a year of listening. And I was like, oh, wow, this really works. Like that did something better than I could done, could have done in a much, much shorter time. And so that was, that was really our MVP. That was proof that, you know, AI can be used to, to A, build a playlist, which is something Thing that we've always considered uh, quite a quite a human behavior. Well, when you're building any MVP or early prototype, right, you're having to make certain decisions and trade-offs as you make it. So tell me about some of those, some of those decisions and trade-offs and how did you cope with them? So I'm thinking as well, from there, we kind of progressed into, you know, a very sort of basic front end. You know, funnily enough, I feel like, you know, I literally think my co-founder can do anything in the world, but the one thing he hates to do is front end development. You know, he loves back end, scalability, AI. He cannot build something to look pretty for the life of it. So there was there was a lot of interesting choices around, you know, how the thing's going to look in, in the very first instance. But there was, there was other choices to make. So for example, you know, when we first started building the product, I was convinced that the search technology, AKA using a fingerprint of an audio file to search hundreds of thousands of other fingerprints was the revolutionary technology. I mean, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I thought, wow, this could just, this could move the industry on by 10 years in, in, in one leap. But it turned out when we took it to the market, People were wowed by that technology, but they didn't want to buy it. It was it was almost a leap too far. And in fact, what people started to say to me was, oh, can it do tagging? Like, can you use that same fingerprint? And as well as the search results, can it also say what genre the track is, what key the track is in, what BPM the track is in? And to be honest, my whole point was, if you use fingerprint search, you don't need those tags. We now have gone past the point where we need those words. A fingerprint can do much, much more than a single, you know, just the word pop can do in terms of recognizing similarity. But I feel like back in 2018, when we started Museo, the industry was not willing to let go of its tags. 
And not only was it not willing to let go, it certainly wasn't willing to take a risk on something that didn't use, that something they'd spent a long time and a lot of years investing in. So really, search was actually our first product. And then from that, we reverse engineered the tags because people were not willing to buy the search without the tags. So that was a really interesting learning curve to me. You know, at what point are you too early? At what point are you too late? And even if you have something that you know will bring the industry on 10 years uh, in advancements in, in a very short time, if people have invested significant time and resources into another method, you are going to be very, very hard to pull them away from that method. So you, you kind of hinted at product progression there as you were talking, but I'm curious, you know, how how you matured the product from there and how you went about building your roadmap of, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. You know, roadmap one is, is, is a little bit easier in terms of it's always been my ethos that we build the thing that people want to pay us for. And so, you know, when you're very, very early, you're sort of thinking, what will people pay for? And you have to take a few gambles based on your industry knowledge about what that might be. But, you know, the roadmap in 2021 is it's very much tied to what our biggest customers are interested in and, and you know, where, where they see the industry going and where I see it going in, in collaboration with them. But, I'm, you know, I'm also thinking about when we very first started the company, as I say, you know, going from search to reverse engineering tagging, um, there are lots of points at which you have to make a decision one way or the other. And another sort of almost misstep of mine is, um, you know, I remember thinking what the first question out of any customer's mouth is, sounds great, does it work? right? Because I've just sold them magic beans and it sounds fantastic and AI can do all of this stuff. First question they want to know is, sounds good, does it actually do the thing that you're saying? So I was like, great, we gotta, we got to have some kind of demo on the website where people can get some very, very quick proof of concept. And we were like, okay, let's throw up the tagging API. Let's have a way that people can test the API and they can find out that it works. And we'd gone through this whole plan and we were like, yep. And you know, right at the point at which we were gonna go live, I just said, guys, I feel terrible about this, but I need to go back to one of our sort of core insights, which is if you were to draw a Venn diagram of the overlap of music industry people who want our product, people who can code, the overlap is almost zero. The music industry is not a tech savvy, developer heavy industry. And so I just suddenly went, the people we're trying to prove this to are industry people. None of them can code. Right at the last minute, we pivoted to a code-free solution where people can just upload an MP3 and instantly get the tags back for that track. So we used our own API to build an interface. And so there are many, many occasions like this where you have to make the uncomfortable decision of saying, I suddenly realized we're probably wrong and, and I want to lay industry insight into this for the reason. In terms of how you guide a product, you have to go back to, to what you know about the industry and, and your core insights. And you also have to be sort of willing to, to question yourself and, and, and be wrong on, on many occasions. Well, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And, you know, I'm interested in what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. It, it differs slightly in the in the tech team and the, the sort of the music teams that we have at Museo. 
you know, when I met my co-founder, we realized he's Swedish, I'm British, we're a similar age, we've got a similar amount of years experience. His background is actually in gaming, whereas mine's in music, but we sort of very quickly developed a shorthand where, you know, we were like, oh, this is great, we can work together quite easily. We sort of look at our our dev team from a similar perspective, although I would say I have heard that my co-founder's code tests to join the team are quite difficult. He's, I mean, he's got high standards, you know, and I think it's because, you know, we're not necessarily a, a SaaS company with a with a website and a, and a payments page. You know, we're building deep tech artificial intelligence and, you know, we really need the best of the best working with us. And I'm, I'm pleased to say via the code test and the interview processes, we really do have some fantastic developers and they come from all over. I mean, we're all based in Singapore, but we have Russians, we have French, we have Indian, we have Singaporean, we have Swedish, you know, it's a, it's, it's full diversity. I don't think we, I don't think we double up almost anywhere. And then a slightly different approach when it comes to, say, the music and sales team. I, I just pulled very, very deeply from my existing network. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that, that I have you know, had been working in Singapore for a few years already. I already knew a, a great commercial director. I knew a few other industry people. I took a few shortcuts by, um, you know, dipping, dipping back into my old network. Any advantage you can give yourself, you know, any any nice little uh, shortcuts as a startup, and and another one actually on the developer side and and the the sort of commercial side is we also dig right back into the EF network. So you know, Entrepreneur First has now had over two thousand people do the program. You know, obviously not everyone starts a company, not everybody wants to. You know, some people do it and go, oh, this is not for me. So again, for us to be able to, to sort of reach out to a pre-qualified uh, group of people who you know are super smart, most of them have PhDs and be like, hey, who wants to, who wants to join us on this? I mean, you know, that's a very valuable network for us as well, especially from a dev perspective. Let's talk about scalability. So in the technology, you know, did you build this from day one to scale efficiently or were you kind of fighting this as you grow? So actually built to be scalable, built to be scalable from day one. And, and that is in all credit to my co-founder, whether it's from experience or whether it's a, you know, a passion of his, both of which are true. He wanted to build this to be able to scale straight away. I think he understands the pain of having to go back and re-engineer an, a, an entire product uh, based on a, a new customer. Although we are in an interesting scaling process at the minute, we've been able to process about a million audio files a day and we're in the process of scaling up to about 5 million. But I do remember as well, you know, you, there are many times as a developer where you have that choice. You know, I remember whilst we were at uh, Entrepreneur First, there was an advisor who worked there, really, really fun guy called Joe. Basically, when we told him our MVP, he was like, great, get it up and running by tomorrow. And, you know, Aaron was like, that's going to take me two weeks. And he was like, two weeks? That's what? That's way too long, guys. Like, don't waste your time. Like, just throw something up there. Doesn't matter if it works. Doesn't matter if, it, if it's just, a, a you know, an interface and there's nothing behind it. Just, you know, get it up there. And, you know, my co-founder was like, no, I'm absolutely not going to work that way. You know, it's um, we're going to build it properly, and I would rather dedicate two weeks now than have to than have some bullshit product that doesn't really work, and then have to go and reverse engineer it in two months and, and take another six months. I would rather spend the two weeks now. 
you know, I think that was a, a great sign for our relationship as well because I just fully supported him. You know, he's a very experienced developer. If he thinks this is the way to go, he's got my backing 100%. So, so yeah, even from month three of the company, not even incorporated yet, we were building for, for scalability. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built, what are you most proud of? There's a couple of things that stand out to me as like things that just give me an immense amount of joy. And they give me an immense amount of joy because we've built them. There's two things. There's one which is, you know, we have an office here in Singapore. And, you know, especially during various lockdowns, when everyone was working from home, I just remember the first day that we were allowed back in. And there was like, you were allowed a limited number of people back in the office. And I remember just looking at the office going, oh, wow, we did this. We did enough business that we got an office. We've got people in it that work for us. We're, we're a real company. This is, this is the real deal. And every time I go to the office, I love the space so much that I just, you know, it's, it's nothing exciting. It's just a sort of a heritage uh, shop house in Singapore, but it's, but it's ours, you know, and that's an achievement. The second thing is, if you know, and funnily, one of the funny things about Museo is about 70% of my customers will not let me say who they are. They, they're very, they like to be very confidential. They probably like you to think that they were building the AI themselves. So, so it's hard that I can't often say the, the most exciting names that we're working with. But if you were to go to, to me three years ago when I was starting the company and told me the top three clients that I would be selling products to I would have think you'd lost your mind like I could never have imagined selling you know technical solutions to, to some of the biggest and best music companies in the world and and so that is something another thing that I'm that I'm incredibly proud of well let's flip the script a little bit tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it one mistake I made um, probably about six months ago or at the end of last year, obviously as a growing business, we have a lot more customers coming on board. And I was like, we should hire a customer success person, uh, which is not a mistake in terms of thought process. However, I made two mistakes. The first mistake was that I hired remotely and we have not been a remote business to date. And it is kind of harder to be successful to skill up in a deep tech business while you're remote. So that was kind of one of the first mistakes I made. And and that was kind of COVID related as well. You know, this person would have relocated if they could have. And then the second mistake I made was that, you know, I currently do all of the customer success. And my idea was just that this person would report directly to me and they would learn everything by doing everything I do. And then eventually they would just take it over. The mistake there really is, I don't know, I don't, I shouldn't really have anyone else reporting to me at this stage. Like I didn't have enough time to dedicate to this hire. I didn't have enough time to skill them up. And ultimately they were not successful in the role, but I put almost all of that blame on myself and the decisions I made. You know, that's difficult, but I, I always, you know, I have a lot of personal ethoses around, around hiring and you know, if you make a mistake, it's okay to kind of say to that person, you know, I've made an error here. This isn't the right fit. I don't want to waste your time and 
and, and thank you for, for taking the chance with us. Um, you know, there's a right and a wrong way to treat people, even when you are the one who's made the wrong choices. So that's kind of probably the one that's most fresh in my mind, because I also feel a huge sense of responsibility for the people that work for me. Um, and that's the part of being a, a founder that I find the hardest. A lot of people rely on you for their, for their livelihood, for their, their monthly salary, and that's a big responsibility. And so when I make mistakes, it doesn't just affect me or some multi-million dollar music company, it affects, it affects you know, the, the people working for me. And so, so that's, that was one problem where I'd made a huge mistake about six months ago. Um, but I was very open with the rest of the team and explained it to them pretty much just as I, as I have to you now, Noah. Well, what does the future look like for your product and for your team? We've got that roadmap on the go. Uh, you know, we're building some exciting new features, uh, some of which are requested, some of which will be a pleasant surprise. You know, we're building out custom filters into our search dashboard. So music companies who have a lot of release information or a lot of artist uh, percentage ownership information will be able to use that as, as specific filters whilst also using our, our AI search. We also have a roadmap of the other tags that we want the AI to be able to identify. You know, we currently do about 20 moods. We want to up it to about 50. And we're also thinking we might experimentally see if we can teach an AI to identify time signatures. And we're also working on some very um, early experimental technology called hit potential. So the idea that if you can train an AI on a historical database of music, is it also able to predict trends and, and identify the hits of the future? Um, so yeah, lots, lots of exciting things to come for, for 2021. I'm very excited. Well, Hazel, let's switch to you for a moment. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. I do, I do. And it's the naffest answer in the world, Noah. And and sorry, naff is a very British term for not cool and a bit a bit sort of, you know, people are gonna hear my answer and think, oh, what a, what a loser. But this, this came up in conversation, which, and I, I suppose it comes from, you know, growing up, I didn't know a lot of women in business. There's no history of uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurism uh, within my family. I didn't have a female boss maybe up until my late 20s. And so really when people ask where I got my inspiration from, it, it's from a TV character. So I'm currently on my fourth complete watch through of Star Trek Voyager. The person that I look to as probably my favorite example of women in, in leadership is uh, Captain Catherine Janeway of the Starship Voyager, which again, sounds, sounds crazy and it's a little bit sad that that's the only answer that I can come up with. But I also hope to possibly maybe inspire a new generation as a, as a real human being. But that, yeah, that's that's essentially the, the number one person that, that I look up to still. You know, we talked about mistakes, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Actually, I don't, I don't think I would maybe do anything particularly differently. Um, I'm sort of very grateful to have got where I've gotten in work and in life and, and I'm pretty happy with the outcome and you know 
it's kind of the, the the flap of a butterfly's wings. If I if I change one thing, I I might not get to to where I am today. So a bit of a maybe an unusual answer, but I probably wouldn't change anything. Not so far. And actually, one of my uh, my favorite quote because I you know when I first started being a founder, I did find it particularly hard. And you know one of the EF founders, a guy called Aaron, who's got a startup called Privia. He sort of, you know, he's a he's a sort of third time founder. He's done it quite a few times before, and you know his his quote, which you know I, I don't I don't think is super original, but he was like, when everything goes right, you don't learn anything, and that's so true, right? If everything just like every single sale I made, I made it every single price everyone agreed to, then you would never you would never learn how to do any of these things. So so yeah, you've got to be grateful for the tough times as well, and and I am. Well, last question, Hazel. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? You know, my first things would be, do you have a co-founder? This is a much easier journey uh, to do with, with an equal. Do you, do you have any investment? If I think the idea is really that amazing, can can I get in with a discount <laughs> nice and early on? And also, I guess my other thing would be uh, the thing I try to do is uh, can I make any introductions? So I remember one of the reasons I joined Entrepreneur First was I had absolutely no idea how you would raise money. I had never met an investor. I don't. I didn't know anyone who'd ever raised money. I didn't know anyone who was an investor. And to me, it just seemed like this insane world of like, oh, it's completely inaccessible. And actually, like most things, it can be navigated. But you do need someone to to give you the first, maybe the first rung on the ladder. So if I can also be the first rung on a ladder for you know future entrepreneurs, then then that that would be the role that that I would like to take in that situation. Well, Hazel, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Musio. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>